Hello, this is Mindy Gorman Fletzer, and today we'll be mapping eating disorder recovery on the 15 minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on using the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things, all the things our clients and patients do every day matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these intersections and these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be talking with Mindy Gorman-Plutzer. Mindy brings 25 years of experience to her private practice as a certified functional nutrition and lifestyle practitioner and eating psychology coach. Mindy's life experience and training inspired her to create a framework that combines functional nutrition, positive psychology, and mind-body science, introducing a compassionate resolution to physical and emotional challenges resulting from chronic and complex health issues as they relate to eating disorders. She's the author of The Freedom Promise, Seven Steps to Stop Fearing What Food Will Do to You and Start Embracing What It Can Do for You. And I am beyond the moon proud to say that she is a full-body systems graduate and an active and key member of our advanced practitioner training community of functional nutrition and lifestyle practitioners. I know you're going to eat up all Mindy has to share, so let's get started. Mindy, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Oh, Andrea, I'm thrilled to be here with you. I am thrilled to have you, and I am excited to talk about this topic because it's so important, and I can't think of anybody I'd rather speak to about it. We are talking about eating disorder recovery, but before we go into the recovery elements and the why, can you first help us articulate and explain what disordered eating is? Absolutely. Eating disorders are basically a collection of symptoms that manifest for many reasons. I was once believed, and many do still believe, that it's rooted in psychiatric and psychology etiology, but new studies are pointing to the prevalence of biology, hmm. which has a very strong impact on these collection of symptoms. The symptoms range from um, an obsessive thought process mm -hmm. related to food, um, person not being able to stop thinking about food and what it will do to his or her body, a fear of gaining weight in, in a very obsessive 
compulsively driven way, um, then there is, so there is a more restrictive form of eating disorders known as anorexia nervosa. Mm -hmm. Then there is bulimia nervosa, which speaks to episodes of eating without stopping, uncontrollable um, bouts of eating beyond the point of fullness, followed by purging. And the purging could show up as laxative abuse, vomiting, or over-exercising. And then there's binge eating disorder, which is where the person just eats far beyond the points of being full. And like bulimia, the binge eating behavior there, it's basically done in an effort to numb, distract, and avoid feelings that the person deems to be intolerable. And then there are subsets of these eating disorders. There's something called EDNOS, eating disorder not, not otherwise specified. There's RFID, which is avoidance restrictive food intake disorder. Mm -hmm. And each of them has their own set of behaviors and each has its own set of etiology. It's amazing how vast the definition is. And I want to get inside to that physiology because you do such a great job of bringing a functional approach to this realm of uh, recovery and of our understanding of how we think beyond the symptom or beyond the branch, as we like to say in the functional nutrition community. It also just strikes me, Mindy, how many women in particular, but a growing number of boys and men must be struggling with some form of an eating disorder. Have you found that to be true in terms of the prevalence? I think it's epidemic. Mm -hmm. I think it's becoming epidemic. Um, you know, we also have people that are struggling with what I refer to and, and many in the practitioner community refer to as disordered eating, which is still as painful. You know, it's an unhealthy obsession with food. How I like to define disordered eating is basically misinformation that is guided by misguided thinking. Mm. Wow. And there's so much misguided thinking out there. There's a lot of one size fits all thinking that kind of uh, gets us down these roads of thinking we should do things one way. Okay. I want to move over to that story that you talk so well about. And when we're thinking about the story in relationship to eating disorders and eating disorder recovery, I've heard you talk about the genetic component. Can you bring us a little bit more into what you mean by that and what those associations are? Yes. Uh, research is telling us that 60 to 85% of eating disorders have some sort of genetic link. Hmm. However, we need to take that a bit further. There's a wonderful researcher out of the University of North Carolina. Her name is Cynthia Bullock, and she happens to be a survivor of anorexia herself and has devoted her career and her life to researching eating disorders and their causes. She has a beautiful statement about genetics loading the gun and environment pulling the trigger. So this is a perfect example of where the story can overlap, where our antecedents can overlap with a trigger. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also a case of bioindividuality because eating disorders present so individually. Everybody is, is so unique because their story is so unique. Um, 
So I, I find that in itself to be fascinating. I, I've had the pleasure of working with so many women who, who come in and they talk about their mother's behavior with food. Yeah. So to wonder about that genetic component, sometimes it even goes back to the grandmother. Um, but then again, you always have to question the story and you have to question the attachment to it and the messages that were related. But were those messages the interpretation of those messages, were they linked to something genetic? I know in my, in my case, I'm one of three sisters. We all had the same messaging, but my sisters didn't develop eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So there's something about my genetic code, my makeup, that allowed those messages to skew differently within me. Right. Yeah. And so many factors could be at play there in terms of the messages we get around the food, the messages we get around our bodies, how we personally pick up on what's being laid down. Like you said, what are other triggers for that development to occur? Okay. Well, ACEs are a huge triggering factor yeah but however aces also fall into the category of antecedents mm -hmm. because we know that when a child suffers those extreme adverse experiences their brain development is dysfunctional right their brains right. aren't going to develop the way that they should so that is going to create an underlying issue that is going to be triggered later in life when, when something sets them off. Yeah, so the ACEs and the messaging as we've been talking about, the culture around food, whether that's our family culture or the culture that we have around us externally in our sociological environment, um, what else falls in that triggered arena that is more physiological that you see in most of your clients? Basically what happens is there is, well, a couple of things. First of all, it's very important to know, and especially for the practitioners listening to us to know, that the eating disorder doesn't start out as the problem. The eating disorder starts out as a brilliant solution right. to protect the patient, the client, from reliving trauma, from feelings that they deem intolerable. And that that's a really, really important thing to understand, that it really basically starts out as self-soothing and protective behavior. But what I've seen in the clients that I work with is that 90 to 98% of them are struggling with some sort of GI distress. Mm. And it's usually a result of their eating disorder behaviors. The restricting, the binging, the purging is basically ravaging their microbiome and that sets off the rest of the systems going into disarray and I know we will talk about that when we talk about the soup but we also know that very often the GI dysfunction can be a contributing factor to an eating disorder we also are learning that children who have GI dysfunction GI distress very often have a predisposed 
inclination. It's a good pre, it's a good predictor of a predisposition to an eating disorder. So if that doesn't speak to the gut brain connection, I don't know what does. Yes, so well said, Mindy. And I, I think it's really important that it's that kind of chicken and egg situation because I know in our practice we see a lot of people who almost develop an eating disorder as a way to abate symptoms. So they're limiting, limiting, limiting to try to gain some control over some of the symptoms that you talked about that are related to those microbial imbalances, symptoms like bloating or difficulty eliminating or a bad feeling that occurs within their body. And uh, then that results in all these other dysfunctions, like you said, in the soup. So let's head over to that soup and talk more about what we see is occurring in the body of individuals experiencing eating disorders? Okay, well, most um, of our clients who are experiencing this kind of GI distress most likely have leaky gut. Mm -hmm. So leaky gut is going to set them up for a host of inflammatory symptoms, right? And it might even create a host of food sensitivities, which creates another problem. Right. So that's, that's really a big one. Then we have the issues of esophageal injury if a client is purging. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's a very, very big one. Um, every client I see complains of bloating. So basically that is when food is not being digested, absorbed, and metabolized efficiently. And, you know, that also feeds into then the psychological piece of fearing what food will do to me. Yeah. And then from there, it cascades to what I would imagine are a host of other hormonal issues, a host of other neurohormone, or like you said, brain and neurochemical issues. And we're just feeding a loop uh, you know, feeding in quotation, a loop of dysregulation and of deficiency that leads to further physiological issues and psychological issues. No question. I mean, the biggest one, I think, is the hormones and the neurotransmitters, um, if you think about it, because the, the thyroid function is going to be impacted because the thyroid hormones are basically metabolized in the gut. So right. when there's dysbiosis, the way that the thyroid hormone is metabolized is affected. You're going to have estrogen imbalances. You're going to have amenorrhea. And to that, I want to say something interesting. I recently read something about that that struck me, that amenorrhea might also be the body's way of protecting the body yeah. because it's too weak to carry another life. Right. Really good point. Before we head over to the skills section, I want to make sure that you covered what you wanted to in this conversation. I know you have a lot more to share about what eating disorders can do to the body and what things in the body can lead to or be a precursor for an eating disorder. So we'll make sure to link people to the resources that you have, Mindy. But is there anything else that you found highly profound in the soup that we should be pointing out before we talk about that recovery arena? Basically, I would put an emphasis on the gastrointestinal pedal. 
and then the immune and inflammatory balance, and then, of course, the hormones and neurotransmitters. But mind, spirit, and emotions, the community are, is so incredible to the healing process because isolation is such a huge symptom of an, an, someone with an eating disorder. You know, they isolate for so many reasons. They literally and figuratively don't want to be seen, whether they're in a tiny body or a large body. Mm-hmm. Very often that weight is, an, is put on in an effort not to be seen. Right. And again, the, the tiny body is there in an effort to maybe stay a little girl or again become invisible. So it's really important for practitioners to to really honor that part of the story as they honor and remember that the eating disorder didn't start out as the problem. But the, the biggest piece for me and why it was so important for me to get this message out and why I'm so grateful to have this platform with you is because we cannot forget the importance of the physiology and how the physiology impacts psychology. That all the messages that the gut sends to the brain in comparison to the fewer messages that the brain is sending to the gut. And the conventional medicine, Western medicine, traditional eating disorder recovery protocols are not taking that approach. They are definitely acknowledging the importance of the gut-brain connection, but they're not honoring what's being put into the gut. And that's the part that we must work really hard, hard on to change. That's so important, Mindy. And it really brings us back to this notion of recovery and what's required for the body to recover. What's required for healing? What are those true mediators that we need to bring in place? So as you are saying, we need to pay heed to the physiological dysfunctions in order to get the body and brain to function properly. So I want to head over to the skill section, but in particularly that nutrition and hydration arena, and talk a little bit about how you speak to a client about a diet that may be, let's say, eliminating a food because it's inflammatory and potentially triggering more of that restrictive behavior. I have to tell you, anytime I speak on a stage, this is the question that shoots up where there are people in the audience who clearly either work with this audience and or have suffered themselves and they're like, wait a minute, what about? So how do you address that differentiation between let's say an elimination diet and something that helps with recovery? The only time I use the word elimination is when I talk about eliminating inflammatory and toxic thoughts. Beautiful. Otherwise, it's all about a therapeutic protocol for now, meeting you where you are. And of course, it needs to be understood that the messaging regarding nutrition is going to change if we're talking to somebody who is restricting or we're talking to somebody who is overeating. And what's interesting to know, and I'm sure you can imagine this, is that the restrictive eater is going to be very happy to take foods out of their diet. So when I'm talking to somebody who is restricting, I'm really talking to them about um, healing their gut, 
restoring their gut and that there are foods that will help and there are foods that will impede. I never talk about removing. I always talk about the choices and I always try to make it as empowering as I can. What makes you feel best? What do you like eating? What don't you like eating? Always keeping in mind the, the control piece and the, the trust piece, that these are people that don't trust their bodies. And we can't love what we don't trust. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to teach these clients to have a loving relationship with their bodies so that they can have a loving relationship with themselves. Um, so there's a lot goes a lot goes into it. But again, I never use the word elimination. When I'm working with somebody who is of the overeating um, eating disorder type, then we're we're talking more about connection to body, trying to get them out of that numb, distract, avoid mindset. And I will spend more time using the food mood poop journal so they can really hone in on what they're feeling when they're eating and explain to them that we need to know without judgment, this is just information, what your body is doing with the food you're eating. So that's really the approach I take. I, I really just want to underscore some of what you just shared, Mindy, and applaud it. I love how you highlighted thinking about it as a therapeutic protocol versus an elimination diet. I also really want to articulate how well you spoke to the bio-individuality just with those two types of examples and where different people can be triggered based on their story and how important it is for us to know them, develop that trust, and really honor their history and what they're struggling with. And this speaks to where the non-negotiables that we talk about in the Functional Nutrition Lab community community will be different for every individual. So we have to not just say, oh, the non-negotiables are eliminating gluten, dairy, and sugar. Always, sometimes we have to bring in other agents to heal before we take or remove anything because of how triggering that removal might be. So, so many pieces of clinical gold in there. I know we just skimmed the surface, Mindy. Any final points that you would like to drive home. And again, we'll make sure that everybody listening knows where to learn more about you and uh, this whole realm of working with people. But any other points of uh, clinical pearls you want to share with us about working with uh, eating disorder recovery? Yeah, you know, languaging is very important. Mm -hmm. Words matter. And because so much of, of the etiology of eating disorders stems from messaging and how much words matter. And, and this is really important to know from a clinical standpoint too. Eating disorders are, their, are a language of their own. They develop when people don't have the words to express the emotions that they're feeling. So the words that we use in treatment have to be very supportive and loving and empowering and empathetic. Um, and just, just as an example, you know, I very rarely use the word fat to describe somebody. 
And I don't let the clients use that word. I tell them that fat is an essential nutrient. It's not a description. It's not a feeling. <laughs> so, you know, even something as simple like that yeah. um, can work wonders in allowing somebody to let go of the shame and the guilt and the years of, of staying hidden away. And, and just, again, honoring the physiology that is impacting the psychology is the best thing we can do to change the way we are approaching eating disorder recovery. Brilliant, Mindy. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us, for doing the work you're doing in the world, and for really broadcasting this message forward. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix team features music by Gilbert Nakayama with production support from Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook, and mixing and editing by Rowan Bradley. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode by email, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please do feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.